wrapping up our, four, our five-week series in this little mini-series we've been walking through, just simply entitled Grace Versus Law. And it's these five episodes that we've walked through for these last five weeks as Mark has put these five episodes, these five stories on top of each other, where Jesus has been going toe-to-toe with the Jewish religious leaders of the day. Jesus has been displaying the power of God's grace. He's been teaching on how grace and grace alone saves But the religious leaders have been coming to the table throwing what they think is the means of their salvation, which is this this obedience to their understanding of the Old Testament law. Everything from the Ten Commandments to the details of slaughtering animals for the payment of their sins. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus came not in the order of the Old Testament priests, not in the line of Aaron, if if you're familiar with this, but he, Hebrews t- teaches us that Jesus came in the line of a new priest, a different priest, Melchizedek from the Old Testament. And so as a result, when the priesthood changes, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12 says, when there's a change in the priesthood, this necessitates a change in the law. Jesus came to establish a new law, not a law written on, on stones from the Old Testament, but a new law that is written on our hearts the very hearts of the people that God saves. So to clarify, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we read uh, this law that was given for a specific purpose for a specific people, the people of Israel. The purpose was to guide them to the Messiah. And that's it. The Old Testament law was never intended to bring about salvation because the law and no law of any sort can fix what's broken. What's broken, as we've been talking about in in, in talking about this stuff in Connecticut, what's broken is the spiritually dead condition of our hearts at birth. The law can't fix that. Only the work of God's grace can transform death into life. And so here's my concern for us, though. I would imagine that most of us in the room this morning would give a good hearty amen to the idea that grace and grace alone saves. I don't think there's anybody here, uh, I, I, I shouldn't assume, but I would think that people would not say that I can become righteous before God by doing a list of things from the Old Testament. I think most of us at least would say it's by God's grace. But here's my concern. My concern is that we might believe that once we're saved, we're now required to prove that we're saved, to prove that God made a good decision in saving us by focusing on keeping this thing of the Old Testament law that God came, that Jesus came to put away. That we now are living in fear to obey the law, to prove our love, instead of living in this rest that we talked about last week uh, with, in Richard's message. It's as if we've put our trust in the very law that we knew couldn't save us, but now we're trusting in, 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 in obeying this law to now bring us a level of, of righteous behavior that, that it couldn't do and wasn't intended to do in the first place. And this is very dangerous. This is what Paul reamed the Galatians about in the book of Galatians. So as we wrap up this mini-series that we've been focusing on, law versus grace, the grace versus rules, how Jesus trumps religion, I really want us to ask ourselves this question this morning. Is fear of angering God, if I break an Old Testament law, even one of the big ten at the beginning, the Ten Commandments, is fear of angering God the motivate, my motivation for attempting to obey. 
Is that my motivation, fear? If I, if I'm, if I better obey this list that we find in the Old Testament or else God's going to be angry with me? Is that, is that the motivation for my attempt at behavior? Or is the joy-filled rest in Christ, in Christ's completed work both on the cross and Christ's completed work in you by cutting out that old dead heart and giving you a new heart? Is your rest in the joy of your salvation, the joy of what Jesus has done, the joy of passing you from death unto life? Is that the motivation for behavior? So in essence, is our motivation or is our behavior a desire to obey? Is it motivated by fear? Fear of angering God if we don't, so we better? Or is our obedience to our Savior motivated by the response to the work that he has done in us. And here's our journey marker that we're going to try to wrap our minds around today. I'm going to go ahead and throw it out. Law breeds fear and death. It's what it's intended to breed. But grace, oh, church, grace breeds rest and life. Let's just dive in. We've been spending a lot of time this morning in prayer. So let's just dive into chapter 3, verse 1. This is the fifth of five of these episodes of Jesus going toe-to-toe. Law versus grace. Again, Jesus entered into the synagogue. And a man was there this time with a withered hand. And they, they being the Pharisees, this religious crowd, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, all right? If you're new with us, we kind of read a little bit, and then we talk about it, and then we read some more, we talk about it, and we wrap it all up. So there is this man who is in clear need of a a part of his body being restored to function properly. And the Pharisees are watching, kind of like with their religious scorecards, keeping score to see whether or not Jesus was going to do something to betray their understanding of their rules in regards to this thing of the Sabbath. Imagine this. A group of self-righteous men are scoring Jesus to see how he measures up to their standard of holiness. <laughs> All right, let's, let's really process that for a second. He's already been marked down in the previous four episodes. Remember the first episode? He was marked down for forgiving the sins of the paralytic and then healing them. That really ticked the Pharisees off. He got marked down for that one. He got that one wrong on their test, their examination of his righteousness. Then in the second episode, he was marked down for fraternizing with the uh, uh, scum of the earth, the tax collectors, right? He was marked down for that. Who would do that kind of thing, right? And then in the third episode, he was marked down on their test for fasting with the Pharisees, I mean, for not fasting like the Pharisees fasted. And then last week, as Richard preached, he, he was marked down for his disciples plucking grains on the Sabbath and having food to eat. So he's already, before he even gets to this question on their exam, he's already working with a, a potential total score of 20%. All right? that, that's, I don't know what your schooling was like, but that's just too reminiscent of third semester Hebrew in seminary. So that's just not good memories. So the best Jesus could do if he passes this is a 20 on this five-question examination of, is Jesus as holy as us? Well, Jesus' fifth question is this question of, are you going to heal this guy on the Sabbath? 
And Jesus knows that they're taking this, this account of him. He knows what they're doing. They've been quizzing him to see if they meet up to his standards. It's like they're building a case like prosecutors. They're building, they're collecting evidence for one day to prosecute him. It's not just that's what it's, it's like they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. Their, their commitment to the law and their understanding of the law has generated within them the need to put this heretic to death. So what's the big deal about healing on the Sabbath in the first place? Why are they against this? Well, not to re- rehash some of the things we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, but the Old Testament says that the seventh day is to be a day of rest, of resting from, what, uh, from work and from different things. And the, 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 the religious crowd had taken this to crazy extremes like we've talked about. In, for, for example, the religious crowd, these Pharisees would say, if you take more than 1,999 steps on the, on the Sabbath, you are in violation of the Sabbath laws. The Old Testament doesn't talk about that, but they have taken it to these crazy corrupt extremes because the problem is a heart problem. Their hearts are dead and they're trying to prove to themselves that they can save themselves by their good works. The law was intended to give people rest, but the Pharisees corrupted this day into a day where people lived in fear, not in rest. The Sabbath was made, as Richard talked about last week and and, and the Scripture taught us last week, that the Sabbath was made for man's benefit, not man was made for the Sabbath. And in our community group last week, last Thursday, Winston made this beautiful comment. He said, it's impossible to live in fear and to live at rest at the same time. And so what this obedience to the law had caused, to their understanding of the law, what it had caused is this fear. People lived in fear. Am I going to disobey the law? Am I going to disobey? Am I going to do too much on this day? And they weren't actually resting. The Sabbath had become a day where there was more fear and more anxiety and more work taking place to make sure they didn't work than what it was intended to just be a day of rest. So in this at the end of this, this, this final episode in this little mini-series, Jesus has been declaring his, his authority over things of the, like the Sabbath. Last week we saw Jesus declaring his authority of, as the Lord of the Sabbath. But today we're going to see him display it. He, he's going to display the fact that he has authority over the Sabbath, authority over the law, authority even over creation. So fear versus rest. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but he gave us a spirit of, of power, of love, of self-control. But their hearts, the hearts of these Pharisees were blinded to the reality that Jesus, this man before them, was in fact and still is the God-man. He was and still is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and they had failed to identify him as the standard of righteousness. And they were trying to measure him to their man-made standard. So undoubtedly, Jesus knows their intent. Undoubtedly, Jesus knows that they're there with their scorecards. He knows what they're trying to do. He knows that they're trying to build this evidence against him. And so in verse 3, 
Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, and in, in the Greek it's kind of cool, it says, he said to the man, the one with the withered hand. It's like, uh, like really pointing this guy, like the, Mark really wants us to know, like not just any man, but is the one with the withered hand. Uh, Jesus says to him, come here. Again, last week Jesus declared that he is the Lord over the Sabbath, but we're about to see him display the fact that he's Lord over the Sabbath. These two words right here, come here, they're, they're kind of, uh, what Jesus literally is saying is, hey, you who, who's out there on the outside, you are to come here into the midst. Okay, what do you think is one of the most intimidating things for someone who has a clear physical uh, uh, ailment, a clear physical handicap. Well, one of the greatest intimidations for someone who has a, a physical handicap is to be in the center of the room, the center of attention. I mean, there, there's, it's not a, a hard understanding to, to realize why this man was already on the outside of the group. He wasn't in the middle. Jesus was calling him into the middle. Uh, the, the, uh, in the day in which these, this, this was written in the first century, People believe that, that if you had some sort of physical ailment like this, it was a result of either your sin or the sin of your parents or something along those lines. And so there's this judgment. Oh, you have a withered hand. There's, you must have committed some sort of heinous crime. This is God's judgment against you. Jesus' Pharisees even asked Jesus about this. He said, see that guy with the blind man his disciples asked? Uh, Jesus said yes, and the, his disciples said, is, it be, is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus very plainly said it's neither it's so that the son of man might be glorified and jesus healed him and the son of man was glorified and people in a certain sense still think this way i don't have time to get into the, uh, this story that i want to, i would like to share but um i had a, a, a pastorly colleague of mine one time uh say in a meeting that a uh a child in our congregation uh died because the parents, when they were teenagers, were promiscuous. And, and I, I read the New Testament to say, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so if sin and the penalty of these sins remain, then the cross is insufficient. And so this is, this is how we still think, though, sometimes. The village that we're going to be ministering to uh, in Guatemala in October, and, and we're going to talk more about our trip to Guatemala this coming October, and hopefully we'll get many of you to participate in it. In this village, when we were there last, there was this girl who had some sort of uh, hives or, or some sort of uh, sores all over her body. It was, it was, we don't really know what it was, but um, she was clearly ostracized from the rest of the kids. The other kids were playing and having fun. This girl was shy, and I mean, they were all over her body. And so she didn't have many friends. She was always on the outside when the kids were playing. She was always on the outside looking in. And when it was her time in the clinic that we had set up, when it was her time to sit in the chair, um, at first she didn't want to because it was kind of the center of attention in this clinic that we had set up. And April began showering her with affection and showing love to her and just, just loving on her and just slowly this little girl who had been ostracized clearly because of this physical issue, she began just like a flower, just starting to blossom. And she started laughing and she started having fun like a little kid's supposed to. But when there's a physical issue, the last thing most people, not everyone, but the last thing 
someone with a physical handicap wants to be as the center of attention, especially when there's a culture of, of, of degrading that individual. So imagine how intimidating this could have been for this man, for Jesus to say, hey, you, the guy with the, the one with the withered hand over there in the shadows, come into the middle. How intimidating. Jesus calls this guy to the middle of the room, a guy who would never have been in the center stage of this synagogue. He is the center stage. And Jesus, in verse 4, says to these Pharisees, with this man with the withered hand standing in their midst, he says in verse 4 to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. In in Jesus' unique and his quintessential style, he he gazes at these Pharisees and gets to the true heart of the matter. What is the intention of this law called Sabbath? The first question here seems to deal clearly with the man with the withered hand. To do good to this man or to do harm to him? See, Jesus, with compassion, he, he knew that He could heal this man on this day, even though it was a day that the Pharisees said this kind of stuff shouldn't happen, healing. But Jesus said, is this a day where I'm not able to do good to somebody? Or do you want me to do harm to him by withholding my my, uh, healing powers and letting him live another 24 hours to get to a day that's not the seventh, it's now the first day, and all of a sudden now we can do something about this guy. That is in Jesus's compassionate heart. That is harming this guy for him to go a minute further, a minute longer with this ailment that Jesus now had the power to rectify. And the answer to Jesus's rhetorical question simply is that the Sabbath was intended for good. It was intended for good to be done, not for harm to be done. But the second part, I want to drill into the second part of this question. But Jesus doesn't just ask, is is it okay, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? But Jesus drills in and says, is it okay, is it lawful to save life or to kill? Is it lawful to save life or to kill life? Jesus wasn't saving the physical life of this man with the withered hand by by healing his hand. Further, if Jesus didn't heal him, that man wasn't going to die in that moment. So who is he talking about? What has he done here? I really believe Jesus has shifted the conversation from the man with the withered hand to his, himself. It is lawful to save life on the Sabbath. The Old Testament talks about if someone falls into a pit and it's on the Sabbath and their life is endangered, it is okay to go and do whatever it takes to get that life, to save that life. But it is not lawful to kill somebody on the Sabbath. That that violates the Sabbath law, but it also violates this other law in the Old Testament called do not murder. But the Pharisees, this irony is that Jesus knows their intention. He knows their heart. He knows that they're trying to build this case against him to kill him. He's calling them out for the hypocrites that they are. Jesus is, in essence, with these two little rhetorical questions, he is saying, Pharisees, you're sitting there laboring with your scorecards and your pencils trying to build a case against me. You're working hard together on this Sabbath day to build up charges to end my life. And the evidence that you're going to use as in your case against me is that I do good on the Sabbath. 
I casted out demons in Mark chapter 1 on the Sabbath. I healed Peter's mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1 on the Sabbath. My disciples ate grain on the Sabbath. What's wrong about that? And now I'm about to restore a man's withered hand. Meanwhile, you Pharisees, you are on this Sabbath working hard to build a case to do harm to me and even to kill me. Now, Jesus said all that with just two rhetorical questions. And they were silent. What can you say to that? How do you respond? They had no defense. The truth is that the law, that it was lawful to do good. The truth is that it was lawful to, to save lives on the Sabbath, Sabbath. But the Pharisees were not there to do good and to save life. They were there to do harm and to kill. Jesus' authority is, on, is, is shown here. He knows the condition of their depraved hearts. He knows their thoughts. He knows their intentions. He knows their wicked desires. And he, in verse 5, he looks around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. So Jesus scans around with fury looking at these men. They had become more committed to their traditions than they were committed to the well-being of a human. His anger and his fury, though, was mixed with grief. It was mixed with compassion. This is to say that Jesus was angry at these men, but his heart ached for these men. His heart ached that their hearts were so hardened. Jesus knew what was at stake. He knew what was on the table. He knew what the options were. He knew that if he showed these Pharisees up again by healing again on the, on the Sabbath, he knew that their, his life would be taken. He knew that if he showed kindness to this outcast by drawing him into the center of the, of the synagogue and by doing something that only God could do by healing him, he knew that the Pharisees would add this to their list, their growing list of charges. And one day he knew that this, these charges would be brought up against him for his crucifixion. Jesus knew what was at stake but what was his response? He wasn't like, oh, I see what's happening. I'll just sit down. I'll just be quiet. I'll play by your rules. No. Jesus came to make all things new. And he was going to include this man's withered hand in that process. Isn't that good? So even at the risk of knowing his life would be ended, he heals this man. And that's a hero. That's a hero to be worshipped. When Jesus knows by having compassion and showing love towards somebody, the least of these, an outcast, someone who is in the shadows of the synagogue, who could never be in the midst because of this physical ailment, he has compassion on them. He heals them knowing it would seal his fate. And so that's exactly what he does. He says to the man, the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretches it out. And his hand was restored. Just that simple. Jesus spoke it. The man obeyed it. And his hand was restored. By speaking healing over this sin, by doing, I mean, over this man, sorry, by doing good on the Sabbath, Jesus sealed his fate. Read verse 6 with me. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, against Jesus. And this was the content of this, of this council. How 
to what? Destroy him. They're having counsel to destroy a man who does good on the Sabbath. So these Pharisees, they were silent when they were in the synagogue and Jesus called them out for their intentions. But they had plenty of words to share now when they went out and met up with the Herodians to try to destroy Jesus. Again, this, this is just amazing irony. And Mark uses irony over and over. But the irony in this episode is that Jesus uh, is, is being held uh, accountable for the very things that the Pharisees are guilty of working on the Sabbath. Do you think that these Pharisees counted each and every step as they went around to, to, to call the Herodians to, into counsel? Like, oh, I'm at 9, 1997, I better freeze. No way. Do you think that they waited to the next day, to, to Sunday, or till sundown Saturday night before they got around this council and began to work and to labor to develop these charges into an official charge against Jesus? No. It says immediately they went and held counsel. The Pharisees were guilty of the very thing, truly guilty of the very thing that they were accusing Jesus of. The Herodians, by the way, is a group of people that we might not be that familiar with, but they were a group of people that were loyal to Herod the Great, King Herod. That's why they're called Herodians. They were loyal to Herod the Great, who by this point had died, and his sons had become the rulers in Palestine. Herod the Great was the king of the region when Jesus was born. And when Herod, as Richard talked about earlier, heard that from the Magi, from the wise men, that Jesus was born, that there was this king that was born, Herod thought it best, think, look at this depravity of his heart, he thought it best to go ahead and murder every boy in Bethlehem under the age of two instead of one day competing with one of these boys for the kingship of the area. This massacre of probably, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds of little boys age two and under, it was labeled as the slaughter of the innocents. And that term has been used this weekend to describe what happened in Connecticut. A deranged man, this Herod, but more importantly, a totally depraved man. Some 2,000 years ago, Herod thought it better to kill them than one day compete with one of them. Not much has changed in the depravity of the human heart in the last 2,000 years. Sometimes we think that things are getting better only to then have our hopes dashed against the rocks when we hear and get text messages on Friday morning that somebody has gone into an elementary school and killed some 20 kids. But the root of Herod's problem, the, the root problem for Herod when he slaughtered those babies, the root problem for this man in Connecticut when he slaughtered some 20 children, the root problem for Cain when he killed his brother Abel, the root problem for the Pharisees as they're trying to kill Jesus, the root problem for mothers and fathers in America alone who kill some 4,000 babies every single day in their mother's womb, the root problem is the total depravity of the human heart as a result of sin's curse. It's the same problem that each one of us are born with. Now, we might not go into a school and kill kids, but we're all born spiritually dead. And the only fix for that is a spiritual heart transplant. Our spiritual hearts are dead because of sin. 
And God graciously transplants that original dead spiritual heart with a new heart, with a new creation when He graciously saves you. You see, here's the point of these five weeks. If I could, we could kind of drill it all down. No matter how hard the Pharisees or you or I try, we can never obey enough rules to save us. The problem isn't a morality problem. It's a death problem. We are born spiritually dead. Our spiritual hearts are dead at birth. And again, when God saves us by His grace, He gives us a new heart that's incorruptible. A new heart that Ephesians 4 talks about is created in the likeness of God Himself in absolute true holiness and righteousness. The Spirit of God is now united to us through this new creation. And the Spirit of God directs our lives. Not rules, not regulations, from the Mosaic law, or from any law, but this new spirit that God has put in us. This is what the mission of Jesus centered around. As he hung on the cross, he hung there in the place of sinners. You and me. Every single sin of every single believer who would ever live was placed of whoever would believe on him. Every single sin of every single believer who would ever believe in Jesus was placed on Jesus as he hung there. He died the death that we as sinners deserved. And he was buried into the ground, taking that sin far, far away. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And when we talk about Jesus rising from the dead, raising from the dead, we talk about that it proved that he was God. And yes, his resurrection proves that he was God. We talk about how when he rose from that, it, was, it proved that he was greater than sin. And yes, Jesus is greater than sin. His resurrection proves that. We talk about when he rose from that, he was greater than the, than the devil, greater than Satan, and greater than death. And yes, those things are absolutely true and are proven by his resurrection. But one thing that we, we don't talk enough about is that the resurrection, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, it gives life. It gives us life. It gives us something that rules and law can never give. And in fact, in Galatians chapter 2, if you want to write these verses down and, and read them when you get home maybe, but Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that through the law, this is verse 19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So the law brought death so that now through faith I have life. And verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. So that old man, it was put on Christ. All that sin, all that corrupt heart, it was placed on Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live. And this life I now live, he continues to say, I live by faith, by grace. And the Son of God, the law brought death, but grace brings life. Jesus being rose, risen from the dead brings life. Law brings death. Grace brings life. In John, write this one down if you're writing them down. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, John says, he who has the Son, talking about Jesus, has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's a life to be lived, a life to be had right now that the resurrection of Jesus provides and is by His grace. And so that's why our journey marker that we've been talking already about throughout this morning is that law breeds fear and death. And that was the intent of the law. That's what it was here for. But grace 
breeds rest and life. Notice that these are complete polar opposites. Law and grace, complete polar opposites. Fear and rest, complete polar opposites. Death and life, complete polar opposites. So Jesus came to bring an end to the system of trying to achieve salvation by means of keeping the Old Testament law. The law is insufficient to save. Not because the law was bad or evil, but because the problem was with us. We were spiritually dead and the law cannot transplant the heart. Only grace can do that. The law was given to show the need for the Savior, not to be a Savior. In fact, later in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 21, it says, Is the law, then, since it's not good enough to bring salvation, is the law contrary to the promise of God? And Paul says, no, it's a part of the plan. And he even says, if a law was given that could bring life, then we could be righteous uh, because of a law. But the law and no law can bring life. But the Scripture, the Old Testament law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. So the law brought death, the law brought slavery, but Jesus is here to bring freedom and life to those who believe a union with God that the law wasn't designed to do. Again, people don't need to, be, to live a perfectly good life by the standard of a perfectly good list. In fact, that's impossible to even do. The problem isn't with the list. The problem is with our hearts. Our hearts are dead. And Paul goes on to talk about in Galatians chapter 3, he says that when the law was here, it was, he calls it a guardian. It's kind of like foster parent. It was a temporary guide. But now through faith, through Jesus, we have moved from being the law as our foster parent, as our guardian, to now we have achieved sonship. In God, we now have life in God the Father. Paul even says in Colossians chapter 2 that this written code, this written code of the Old Testament law and all of its legal demands, talking about the Old Testament law, it was nailed to the cross. And when Jesus died, the requirements of this Old Testament law died as well. Its purpose, again, is to show our need for Jesus, to show our need for the Savior. If the law that even God created could not bring righteousness, then why do we think any other sort of list that we could create can bring righteousness? Going to church, doing good to my neighbor, helping out in the community. Rules cannot save. Rules cannot sanctify us before God. And rules certainly cannot renew the mind. That's what grace is for. Grace saves us. Grace sanctified us. Grace renews our mind. At salvation, we need to be reminded that at salvation, we pass from death until life. At salvation, we pass from darkness into light, from slavery into freedom, from foolishness into wisdom. At salvation, we pass from rebellion into sonship. We pass from aliens into citizenship. We pass from child of the devil to child of God. We pass from depraved to now sanctified. We pass from 
fear into rest. We pass from the old covenant into this new covenant. We pass from the object of God's wrath to now the object of God's affection. At salvation, we pass from enemies with God to now friends with God. We pass from spiritual blindness to now spiritual vision. We pass from being lost to now being found at salvation. We pass from being helpless to being hope-filled. At salvation, we pass from law into grace. And we've got to remember that, that the law, even now as believers, cannot perfect us. That's the work of God in us, who at salvation created in us a perfect new man. Whoever has the Son has life. The law is gone, and all the requirements thereof. Do you have this new life this morning? If you do, it's not because of anything you have worked to accomplish. If you have this new life, it is because of the very grace of God being extended towards you. If you don't have this new life, may I plead with you this morning as best as I know how, may I plead with you this morning to look at the cross, to look at Jesus as the only means by which your sin could ever be forgiven. Let's think about this man again with the withered hand. He was on the outside looking in. And Jesus called to him. He called to him to be smack dab in the center of the crowd. He called him from the shadows of despair into the very presence of God. Listen, Jesus is calling you today. And you are far worse off than just a withered hand. At birth, we have spiritual dead hearts. Jesus is calling you today to trust him, to follow him, to turn from the things of this world, to turn whatever you're embracing as your means of righteousness and turn to Jesus and Jesus alone, to embrace him, to receive him, to rest in him. Because in the Son, there is life. Jesus called the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand, to demonstrate his authority. Several short Years, months later, Jesus stretched out both of his hands to demonstrate his love for you by dying for you who are still sinners. That's awesome. That's the good news. That's the best news ever that in Jesus we have life. Jesus is here and the Pharisees couldn't handle it. Their hearts were hardened. Their minds, their eyes were blinded. Is yours? Is your heart blinded? Is your mind, your, your eyes blinded to the beauty of life that's found in Jesus? What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But maybe you're a believer here today. If you're a believer here today, are you still holding on to some element of the Old Testament law? And you're obeying it out of fear that God's going to condemn you if you break some sort of part of it. And God, through Jesus, has settled the requirements of the law. The law is no longer our guardian. It's no longer our foster parent. We have a new father. God himself, who looks at you through Jesus as being his beloved son and daughter. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus. Fear certainly can produce a level of obedience. 
future, but fear will never produce love. Only resting in the completed work of Christ on the cross and his completed work in you of saving you will generate a level of loving obedience to God that rules will never generate. Grace versus rules. Jesus trumps religion. We're going to bow our heads and our band is going to come up and just begin to lead us in a time of response. In a minute, we're going to sing a fourth worship song entitled, You Alone Can Rescue. Because it is Jesus and Jesus alone that can rescue us from the pit of despair. Not our own self-righteousness, not anything that we bring to the table. But as we bow our heads, as we begin to pray and we begin to reflect, I just want to ask us some questions. Can you see this thing of grace? Can you see that Jesus' work on the cross? Can you see that how his work on the cross put law to death? Can you see it? Can you see that God has graciously saved us for his pleasure and that nothing other than God's work in you can generate love for him? Can we see it with our eyes? Can we see it with our minds that grace is is not just turning a, a bad heart into a good heart, but grace, the grace of God has performed heart transplant by cutting out the old dead heart and replacing it with a new righteous heart, a blameless heart before God. Can you see it, guys? Can you see the fact that no law of any sort is going to improve this new creation that God has created in you? Can we see that understanding the completed work of Jesus is what will bring us rest. It will bring us peace. It will bring us joy. Embracing the completed work of Christ in us will bring us love. It will bring us obedience. It will bring us patience. It will bring us kindness. It will bring us gentleness. It will bring us all the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit is alive. Law brings death. Can we see that the law will never bring these things? Because the law was never intended to bring these things. Can we see that only the work of Jesus in us can renew our minds? The law can't renew our minds. Rules can't renew our minds. Can we see, church, With our minds, can we see with our eyes that the ridiculously amazing, awesome good news of Jesus' grace, it's the only thing that can sanctify us before God. And it's the only thing that can renew our minds so that we begin to live in the reality of who we now are by God's grace. Rules cannot save Rules cannot sanctify. Oh, but Jesus and His grace. The working of the Spirit in us will generate and develop a love for God, an obedience to Him and to His mission on earth that law can never So this is what we're going to do. We're just going to have a moment of 
just quiet. As the band begins to and continues to just play over us. And the question that I beg for you to continue to think is, am I living in fear of God? Fearful that if I break one of these commandments that he's given, one of these Old Testament laws, am I living in fear that, that he's going to be angry with me? Or am I living in the reality of the rest that Jesus has given by his grace? Father, I just pray over your people. I pray, Father, that we would see grace in action. That we would see that Jesus has come to do away with the old and to bring things, all things new. That the law of the Old Testament, as beautiful as it was, as it was a creation of yours, it is insufficient to do what grace has come to do. And Father, if we understand this, if we believe, if we buy into the truth that grace changes our minds, that grace, the beauty of the completed work of Jesus in us changes our mind, we will be more committed, more in love with you, more obedient to you than any sort of adherence to a law that has ended. God, help us to be a people that understand what you've done. Jesus trumps religion, trumps rules. If you want to talk with us, Richard and I will be up front. Let's just ask that God do a work in us.